Hardworking drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer Rodney Edmondson. Since the early 1990s, Rodney has been the drummer for Ronnie Millsap, award-winning singer and piano player. Ronnie Millsap is credited with six Grammy Awards and 40 number one country hits. Ronnie was selected for induction into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 2014. Growing up in Virginia, Rodney developed his feel and approach to drumming throughout the 1970s with local groups that included many styles that prepared him for his eventual move to Nashville. Rodney quickly established himself as a solid musician that could cover many styles from heavy rock to traditional country. Just before landing the Millsap gig, Rodney was the full-time drummer for the traditional country group The Whites. Rodney balances his touring with Rodney with his work at Spectrum Sound Company building and designing road cases. To find out more about this episode and all the episodes that we've done over the last three years, you can find us at WorkingDrummer.net. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and while you're there, leave a rating and review. It really helps us grow. If you want to support what we do here at Working Drummer Podcast, along the right side of the homepage at WorkingDrummer.net, you can find buttons for PayPal and Patreon, and any donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. You can follow us on social media, and if you want to be featured on Instagram, post pictures and videos of your gigs using the hashtag Working Drummer. We'd love to see what you are up to. Before we get started, let's do our bi-monthly check-in on Arjuna Contreras as he makes the move from Texas to Nashville. Hello? RJ. Hey, Matt. How's it going, man? Good, man. How are you? How are you feeling today, man? Uh, a little cruddy. I think I may have caught a little bit of the, uh, caught a case of the itis, I think, but I'm good. <laughs> Nondescript symptoms right now, <laughs> you know, generally, generally referred to as the itis. <laughs> have you been hanging out with Kevin Murphy? Just last night, actually. Yeah, that'll do it. Does he have it too? <laughs> no, no, he he's immune to it, but he just he just gives it to other people. I think it just happens. He gives it. <laughs> he's what is he? Patient zero, maybe uh, to the yeah, right there exactly. The itis, yeah. Um. <laughs> Patient zero, Kevin Murphy. <laughs> but yeah, man, uh, been a, been a cool couple weeks since we last talked. Uh, I um had the chance to uh, hang out a bit with a couple guys that are actually working drummer podcast alums, I believe. Um, Rob Mitchell, who, uh, you know, is the longtime drummer for Sixpence, None the Richer, Mm -hmm. and Ben Caesar, who's, of course, Brad, you know, Paisley's drummer. Yeah. And um, super cool hang, and they're both really supportive and had a few nuggets of wisdom for me and a couple of whom I wanted to share for sure, if you're up for it. Please do. You know, something that kind of in my head already that is, you know, to be everywhere you can, especially in the first few months, like hang, check out as much music as possible, be wherever every, anything is happening like that. See that as your full-time job in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, second, kind of tied to the first is to, seek to first experience the scene and meet people, you know, while being yourself, like not someone who you think you need to be in order to get a gig, (laughs) you know, like, you know, the, you know, to, you know, you're, you're hoping to make friends, not just make, not just get a gig and to, and to kind of come at it from that angle, which, um, 
really kind of like lines up with how I feel about networking. You know, I, I always feel a little sleazy if I even call it networking, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, um, because I'm, I'm more of the kind of guy I think who, you know, just, I'm interested in having, you know, friends that are, you know, have the same interest as me and, you know, love music as much as I do. And, it, you know, if that turns into an opportunity to, to play and make music, then that's great, you know. But uh, so it was, you know, really cool to hear, you know, guys that I, you know, respect kind of reinforce, uh, especially that point, um, you know, that like, you know, seek first to, you know, be a part of what's happening, you know, what's happening. And, you know, be there to make friends, you know, um, I've never been the kind of guy who's like, you know, like super quick to, you know, within, within two sentences, like drop a business card on someone or, you know, someone like, mm-hmm. you know, that right. kind of, right. you know, thing. So it was cool to hear that from guys who have been successful in the industry to say that that's not, that you don't have to be that way. Uh, oh, I, there's a, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for something playing wise for myself. There's a chance that I might do a sub gig on lower broad, uh, in a couple of weeks on lower, you know, lower Broadway. So, uh, I'm excited about that and trying to figure out like, uh, like I was given like a list of tunes, yeah. but also told that like, uh, you know, there's like the right way to play these songs. There's the wrong way to play them. And then there's the, the Broadway way to play them. So, <laughs> you know, I know I, I, you know, I can imagine how much of a learning experience that's going to be, but, um, but I just try to, you know, keep my ears open while I'm playing if the gig pans out and, and, um, and really try to try to have, uh, have big ears yes. and, um, and be able to hear where, where stuff is happening. And I actually, in the gigs that I've heard on lower Broadway before, or when I've heard people play down there, I've noticed that it's like, Oh, that's not really, that's not how that song ends really. But that's apparently the way that, you know, everyone knew the ending, like yes. on that gig that I was watching. So is that something that you could, that you come across a lot, like playing on, on Broadway? Totally. Yeah. And when it gets passed down yeah. from one band to the next, uh, from generation to generation, um, I do have to run, but, um, thanks again, man, okay. for your, for your time. Oh, you bet. I hope you feel better. And, uh, and we'll, we'll check in again in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much, Matt. We'll talk soon, man. Okay. See you, man. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rodney Edmondson. I got my connection with Zildjian kind of through Yamaha. When I got with Ronnie, mm-hmm. um, I was still playing my very first Ludwig kit that was a combination of 60s and early 70s drums. Yeah. And um, I got the gig with Ronnie, and I was in the middle of uh, building myself or putting together a, uh, an Eames kit. Uh, Eames mm-hmm. shells out of out of mm-hmm. Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and I had dropped considerable amount of money, you know, on shells and hardware, and I was getting this all together. Well, Ronnie, at that time, was heavily endorsed by Yamaha. You know, they okay. had given him a grand piano out there, and the band had, you know, prior to me getting there, had pretty much carte blanche with anything that, you know, they wanted from Yamaha. So mm-hmm. there was. Lots of keyboards and mm-hmm. modules and this and that, and mm-hmm. they found out. I think they came to a show somewhere out in California and saw that I was playing this old Ludwig kit. I hadn't finished my Eames kit yet, <laughs> and they were like, "Oh no, you know he's going to be playing Yamaha drums." <laughs> and so they were still on. They were still up in uh, Michigan at the time. The drum department was. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Um, 
the uh, I think drums and maybe band instruments and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure. There was a certain part of Yamaha was based out of uh, Michigan at the time. But anyway, um, they put me in touch with the uh, the rep up there, and he sent me a catalog and said, "Get whatever you want." Nice. I went, Seriously. <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. so uh, the Maple Customs were their brand new top of the line yeah. at the time. They had just they had just been introduced, uh-huh. and so I got a, a set of those with the Yamaha rack system and and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And and uh, they gave me artist privileges with them, which I didn't use to the degree that I should have at the time. Yeah. But um, that's kind of how. Does that and, include a motorcycle? Maybe. Hey, I. T- I, I didn't. I know that some of the people that worked in Ronnie's office kind of abused oh, really? the Yamaha thing because <laughs> there were sets of golf clubs, okay. and I had heard rumors of boat motors um, that they had gotten good deals on. Yeah. Um, I can't confirm that. I never saw them, but I did see the golf clubs. That's great. <laughs> That's hilarious. But uh, I'm kind of getting off track here. We're talking about endorsements. Yeah. I, um, uh, Yamaha... Um, contacted Zildjian because my my symbols were a mixed bag right. of stuff. I had right. Peisty and Zildjian and Sabian. I had all this stuff mixed in there. Stuff that you liked. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. it's what I had. I really, at the time, couldn't afford to buy much more. Yeah. Um, but they contacted Zildjian. And in turn, uh, John King, who was the artist rep mm-hmm. at the time there, he contacted me and said I could pick out, I think it was like 10 symbols Man. to use out there. And mm-hmm. and the A Customs were brand new at the time. Right. So, so this was 91 when you 92. joined? 92. 92 when you joined. Yeah. Okay. All right. Can you tell me a little bit about who Ronnie Millsap is? Well, most people recognize the blind piano player image. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know that's that's the uh, the iconic image and and uh, but uh, Ronnie grew up uh, poor in North Carolina, in the mm-hmm. mountains of North Carolina. Uh, his grandparents raised him, and he was mostly blind as a child. He wasn't completely blind. He he described it as having light sightedness in mm-hmm. that he could distinguish colors and he said in one eye if he held a really bold typewritten page up to Mm -hmm. it he could read it oh wow but he went to the school for the uh, blind governor moorhead school for the blind in raleigh Mm -hmm. and uh somewhere along the way there uh it was a much different time back then a maintenance worker there hit him Mm. for some reason Mm -hmm. and he lost all of his vision at that point oh my gosh so he's been totally blind, you know, since he was a kid. I don't know at what age that happened. I was thinking it was like around 14 is what uh, I read. But still to have... I probably should have reread his book before I came over That's here. okay. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that's significant only because uh, at 14, there's a lot of life that you've experienced and learned at that point. That's the only reason why I, I bring that up as far as when you meet somebody that doesn't have sight, you think, well, did they have it at one point? What's their life experience? Yeah, he did a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, it was, you know, not much. Yeah, gotcha. Um, but, uh, you know, music was what he 
honed in on. Uh, mm-hmm. Radio was uh, his window to the world. Yeah, was radio, mm-hmm. and uh, it's amazing to today. Um, if you ask him about certain recordings, not not just his own, but other uh, songs and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, most of the time he can tell you the artist, the label. Uh, maybe some of the players that were on it, yeah, uh, you know things like that. How long it was on the charts? Yeah, and you know when it was number one, and and he's it's still he still got a lot of that stuff backlogged mm-hmm. in his mind that he can he can pull out. It's mm-hmm. always amazing when mm-hmm. you get into those discussions with him. But uh, um, uh, he tells this story uh, on stage about when he was graduating from the school that his counselors asked him what did he want to do after school. His grades were good, and he had scholarship opportunities to go to college. Okay. And he said he wanted to be a professional musician. Mm-hmm. And they said, no. <laughs> do it to hear him tell it. He says, we want you to do something that's going to make us proud. <laughs> he said, your grades are good enough. You could be a lawyer, a teacher, yeah. whatever you want to do. And he said shortly after that, he had an opportunity to fly to Atlanta to go see Ray Charles, mm. who was his one of his idols. Sure. And he managed to get backstage into Ray's dressing room and said that uh, they had a piano set up in there for him, and Ronnie was in there playing it when Ray came in. Oh, my gosh. And uh, he told Ray he wanted to be a musician, and Ray asked him to play a couple things for him. you know. Yeah. And after that, he encouraged him. Mm-hmm. To pursue that, mm. so, and that so, was in Georgia. Yeah, that was in Atlanta. In Atlanta, he said that yeah. He did that. And he said he flew back to Raleigh and told his counselors that uh, Ray Charles said it was okay, and that's what he wants to do. That's that's amazing. And then he then he went on. Um, I have a list of of things: uh, six Grammys, forty number one country hits, but there were crossover hits as well. Right, things like. Um, Stranger in My House. Yeah. Um, you know, it was early on. Uh, he said he had trouble getting that uh, played in a few uh, at first because of the distorted guitar solo. <laughs> and uh, that one landed like it was number one in Australia for like 12 weeks or something like yeah. that. Yeah. But that was it, it's funny years ago. um uh, Ronnie would talk about um, uh, how traditional country has kind of fallen by the wayside, and mm-hmm. and uh, the you know the rock influences and everything. And, I, and I'd say, well, Millsap, I said you're kind of the ringleader on that when you put out <laughs> "Stranger in My House," and he'd laugh. He said, "Yeah, I guess you're right about that." And I said, "You were the guy that little Jimmy Dickens didn't like at the time because you." Right, you know, right. you went a little bit rock and roll, but Ronnie's always had that R and B influence yes. yeah, in yeah. what he did. One of his, I think, one of his first record deals was on Scepter Records. Okay, and uh, uh, he would get airplay on what were considered black radio stations. Okay, and they didn't know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he told a story that he and his wife Joyce were booked on a show. And I think Sam and Dave and some uh, some of the other big R and B artists and soul artists were on the show, and he and Joyce walked into the backstage area, and they all they had never seen Ronnie, 
And he said, Sam Moore was, was he's white. That guy <laughs> is white. <laughs> and they were all stunned. And, yeah. and it, and it kind of, he said it, um, some of the stations quit playing him. You know, wow. some of those uh, R&B stations and yeah. stuff when they found out. Yeah. So, and he was a big, he was a session player in Memphis. Yeah. Uh, for for a while, and mm-hmm. and uh, he played on a couple of a couple of big albums with Elvis playing piano, and okay, uh, one of the big hits, uh, Kentucky Rain. Yeah, is Ronnie playing piano on that? Oh, I didn't know that. That's yeah. amazing. And Elvis used to have him come over to Graceland and do piano bar stuff for parties down in the Jungle Room. Jeez, that's. I mean, there are so many of his songs that, as I was going back through listing, uh, I. Did not realize that I had or I already knew, right? You know, and and maybe I didn't make the association at the time. Some of them, like "Stranger in My House," some of those I, I've I knew that early on. But some of the other ones, there's also a, a song uh, like 1984 uh, on MTV that was just. I mean, it is so. Oh, uh, she loves my car. Yes. So everything about that video has every 80s element. Yep. And the guitar and and the imagery, just the mullets, the hair, right? The the break dancing guy, out of nowhere, you're, what what is going on? Right, and uh, Mariska Hardigay Hargity, that's it, uh, from uh, one of the SVU series. Okay, uh, was the girl in the car? <laughs> uh, she was in that one of her early. Oh, Mariska. Yeah. Oh she's my in gosh. The, she's in that video. Oh man, I have to watch it again. That's okay. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. I and mean, just such a unique name. Right. She's been a part of that TV series for so long. That's amazing. Yeah. What is it? The uh, Special Victims series. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. She was in that video. That's um, amazing. But we keep trying to get Ronnie to bring, even though I don't believe it was a number one hit. No, I, um, I, but I, we keep trying to get him to bring that out and, yeah. and let us play it. And um, he he likes the vocal sound on that because he did all of the vocals. Okay, um, so mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's got that kind of I don't know a little bit of an edgy sound to it because mm-hmm. it's him singing all of the the uh, the harmonies oh, on all the backgrounds. So you joined in '92, yeah, and at that point he had already had. He was all of his hits. He had all 40 of his hits. He charted a couple of top fives Mm -hmm. uh, when I was there. All is Fair and Love and War uh, was one that that charted. But, um, yeah, I essentially ended his string of number one hits. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what you say or is that what he says? No, I say he's never said that. (laughs) I just kind of put that out there. Tell me how that came about. What what led to that gig? Well, like a lot of things in town, it's uh, you know networking is all important. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowing people and letting people hear you play. And I'll have to backtrack a few years on this. Um, I was playing in a band here in Nashville uh, called the Jeff Allen Band, and back then there was a viable club scene for top forty hard rock bands. Mm. Um, we, we played five nights a week, um, almost exclusively in Nashville. We'd wow. go to, uh, Bowling Green. There was a club up there and play. 
We would play in uh, Clarksville. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, we'd go to uh, Gatlinburg, and there was like a club down in Huntsville or something like that. But we mm. we would play five nights a week in clubs in Nashville. Uh, the Music City Sheraton had a club. Uh, our home club was in uh, Goodlettsville at a, an old um, club called Cheers. Um, it was in kind mm. of a strip mall area uh -huh. up there. Um, there was a club in Bell Mead, the Steeplechase. Okay. Um, so all different places? Yeah, all okay. different places, and we yeah. generally play for a week or two weeks at a time, uh, five nights. But anyway, um, the bass player in that band, a guy named Hoppy Vaughn, uh, was good friends with uh, Jamie Brantley. They were both from Augusta, Georgia, and when they, Jamie was playing with Gary Morris at the time, and uh, whenever he was in town, he'd like to come out and hear the band. Mm -hmm. And so I got to know Jamie then. Well... Couple of years uh, being in that band, it it was you know it was coming apart, and the club scene was starting to come apart also. Mm. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, uh, traditional country group, the Whites. The, yes. Um, Rosie White and some of her friends used to come out and hear that band all the time, and she kept telling me, "The Whites are needing a drummer if you're interested in auditioning." And yeah. I was like, "Good, you know." I mean, we were slamming out there, you know. I was playing big sticks and, you know, breaking all kinds of stuff. I was having a good time, and I just didn't know that I wanted to to do the traditional right. country thing. But then when I realized that the band, you know, it wasn't going to last too much longer what we were doing, and so I told Rosie, I said, yeah, I'll, I'm interested in, in auditioning. Yeah. And um, so I did, and I got the job. And... Mm. Uh, Fast forward a little bit, we, they were members of the Opry, and we played the Opry a lot. Mm -hmm. So I'm playing the Opry one night, and I get done playing my two songs with the Whites, and Jamie's standing behind me. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out he's there with Ronnie Millsap mm -hmm. playing. And so we kind of reconnected and got to talking and everything like that. And so, I don't know, it might have been just a couple of months later, he calls me, and he said, man, we need a drummer to sub for six weeks. It's a nice sub. And I said, he said, can you do it? Yeah. And I said, yeah, I can. I said, because all we're doing is the Opry. The Whites had no road dates during okay. this time. Mm -hmm. I had been there for over four years with the Whites at this point. I was going to ask. Okay. Um, I you played, guys recorded a record? You recorded? I played on a gospel record that they did. Like on, doing uh, it by the book? Doing it by the book. Yeah, mm -hmm. I played a couple of tracks on that. I think okay. Eddie Bears played the rest of it. Okay. They couldn't. They couldn't get anybody good. So they okay, got, you, got <laughs> you and Eddie Bears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I played two tracks on it. And Eddie played the rest of it, and uh, Ricky Skaggs, who's married to Sharon White, uh, produced the album. Okay. So um, we did that. I mean, my, I was up in Pennsylvania with the Whites, and my wife tracked me down at a hotel, which was not easy to do back then without cell phones and things like that. Right, right. And she said, Jamie Brantley has been desperately trying to find you, and you need to call him right away. And this was a Saturday, and I called him, and that, that's when he asked me, could I, you know, do this uh, thing? And I said, yeah, I'll be in town tomorrow, tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. Well, he met me Sunday morning with a folder full of cassette tapes oh, of the show. 
we rehearsed Monday, the next day. Okay. We rehearsed the next day with the bass player, one of the keyboard players, and Jamie. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And so Ronnie had a couple of medleys that were paramount that I needed to work on. Yeah. And that's what I, that I spent most of my time on. And so we rehearsed Monday, and we left Tuesday night uh, to go play a gig with him on Wednesday. And I hadn't played with him yet. And Jamie forewarned me. He said, if for whatever reason Ronnie doesn't dig what's going on up here, he said he may ask me to find somebody else for the next week. He said, so these three shows may be it, even though you you said you were available for six. I said, okay. Yeah, I'll just I'll do the best I can do, and you know the worst thing that happens, I go back to playing the Opry all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get up there at Soundcheck and run a few things, and Jamie calls Ronnie over to the piano, and I thought, okay, he hates it, and he wants Jamie, you know, yeah. right away to go find somebody. So they're talking, they're talking, and then uh, Jamie stands up and he says, "No, Ronnie, he's white." <laughs> I thought, okay, I'll take that. <laughs> oh my gosh. So based on my playing, that's what he asked. So uh, I did the, the six weeks, yeah. and at the end of the six weeks, he offered me the job full time. And that's something I, I didn't, I never pushed for that. You know, I'm here for six weeks, the other guy's coming back, mm-hmm. and uh, he didn't. And Ronnie asked me to take the gig, yeah. and so I did. Yeah. And so twenty-five years later. Yeah. Yeah. Twenty-six. Twenty-six years later. Yeah, yeah. Some of the things we used to do in the show. Uh, if uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the live DVD we did. You know, uh, that All is Fair and Love and War was pretty much a, you know, a rock tune. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and he used to do a thing in the show. We used to do this thing called the Piano Man Medley. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, um, we're doing this uh, kind of rocked out version of Lucille. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of the song, he stands up and pulls himself up into the grand piano and he's standing up in the piano mm-hmm. and getting the crowd going. And then for the out chorus, he jumps out of the piano backwards. Not a backflip, but just he jumps out of the piano backwards and hits the floor, hands on the keys. And we, you know, I didn't know that was coming the first time I played a show with him. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, the blind guy just jumped out of the piano backwards. <laughs> When I first got with Ronnie, learning that that medley was, you know, was all important. Yeah, yeah. And uh, before I got in the band, Ronnie had actually had Mike Post, the yeah. TV music guy, like Hill Street Blues and, uh, you know, oh untold number of TV show credits and things like that. Yeah. Ronnie had him put together that hits medley. Uh, so it was very well done, and but a medley you've got to treat as one long song mm-hmm. um, because of the segues, the tempo changes, and it's got to you know it just has to have this flow yeah. to it. You know, there's no 
oh, I got to reach over and hit my metronome to change this tempo for this song. You know, you can use the, for me anyway, you can use the metronome to count it off Mm -hmm. and then that's it. So it just, it develops a feel as uh, just one long song. You know, you just have to kind of think about it that way. Well, and I know that there's programs now that changes tempos if you have a medley with a sequencer, or maybe there has to be where they want a click to be performed with. But I'm guessing that's not. No, that's not. That's never been the case with Ronnie. There are a few songs that I use a click Mm -hmm. on, Mm -hmm. but ultimately it's, it's really not even necessary. Ronnie used to push and pull things a lot purposely mm-hmm. on stage sometimes mm-hmm. um, to, I don't know, maybe he was just feeling it different that night. Yeah. And I used to stay kind of locked on his left hand okay. on the piano because I always knew if he was wanting me to move it a little bit because he'd get really bold on the left hand, you know, and demonstrative with it. And I would, you know, move the tempo up a little bit or down. After Ronnie had offered me the job and I had taken the job, yeah. you know, we uh, every couple of weeks I'd get a call from Jamie or we would talk and, and he'd say, um, you know, Ronnie's not digging what's going on with this. And, and I kind of purposely held back a lot. You know, I wanted the songs, you know, I wanted to make sure I got from point A to point B. Sure with these tunes and I purposely didn't do maybe some things I might have done otherwise you know I held back a little bit on stuff but Ronnie would never personally talk to me about it it would always come through Jamie Mm -hmm. the band leader Mm -hmm. and so after a couple of times I thought man he's gonna let me go you know I I don't know what it is he wants but he's gonna let me go over it so I made up my mind this one particular night we were going out I said I'm going for it. I'm going to play all this stuff, you know, and and so I did. I played a lot more what I thought was, you know, exciting stuff and and things. And after the show, Ronnie's uh, uh, road manager, Phil Jones, who was a man of few words, uh, uh, Rodney, Ronnie'd like to see you on the bus. <laughs> and I thought, that's it. That's it. I did it. You know, I'm out. And so I went to Ronnie's bus and went to the back lounge there. And he said, baby, that's what I've been looking for. (laughs) And I said, well, Ronnie, you know, maybe from now on, if you would communicate directly with me, I said, not that Jamie's not telling me what you're wanting, but maybe, you know, if there's something you need, I know that I can do it. Just tell me directly what it is you're looking for. And he said, you just keep doing like you did tonight. I said, okay. You also played on some records. I played, well, we did the live DVD. Um, The only other thing that I played on, um, well, I played on a track that that Ronnie was on a compilation of gospel stuff uh, for the Opry. Uh Um, I played on a track on that, but his last album he did for RCA was called My Life. Mm -hmm. And I played on four yeah. cuts on that and unfortunately um the single they picked on it was not really a great Millsap song i played on it uh but it was more of a kenny chesney 
kind of a beach kind of feel mm-hmm. thing. But the title track on that album, My Life, mm-hmm. had they released that, I think it would have been a number one hit for mm-hmm. him, even mm-hmm. after all these years, mm-hmm. uh, because the crowd always responded really well mm-hmm. to that song. Uh, I played on you know local girls and which was the single release, okay, which was cool to be on the single that was yeah, released, but at sure. the same time i 'm going that's that 's really not the single that should be out here right now, yeah, yeah. you know, and uh, uh, so yeah, I played that was the last thing I played on I see. Uh, for, well that 's not true either I, I keep forgetting he 's got a project coming out, I think in January, hmm. and it 's a duets project. Um, he's recut a lot of his hits, hmm. and I, I didn't do all of it. Um, I'm not exactly sure who has played on some of the other tracks, but he's got an original song on there that he's done with Willie Nelson. Hmm. I haven't heard it yet. Uh, we did Smoky Mountain Rain um, mm-hmm. that I did play on, and Dolly Parton oh, has nice. done the uh, Jason Aldean's on a cut with him, okay. uh, Little Big Town. Oh, nice. You know, it's going to yeah. be it's going to be loaded up with a lot of oh, that's great. Uh, a lot of artists. I just you know I hope it does come out in in January. That's the plan right now, and it, so I got to play on on some tracks with that with him. Was there anything different about the arrangement or the approach when you were after playing Smoky Mountain Rain for so many years live then going in the studio? Yeah, they they uh there's a couple of rhythm figures that we do live that uh they you know, they took out. Gotcha. Uh so some of it was simplified a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little more straight ahead. Right. I always find it interesting uh just the times when it's hey, we're going to cut this song that We've been playing forever. Right. It's like, well, gosh, it's usually the opposite when you're tracking. You're just learning the song for the first time. Right. Creating a part right then and there. But how have I, how have I been doing it live? Well, the, the guy that was uh, Rob Galbraith was uh, producing on this, and he's been, he's been with uh, Ronnie for many, many years, you know, through a lot of album projects. Mm-hmm. And Rob has heard us live before, and... Uh, he would tell us, you know, let's just play this thing, you know, just do, excuse me, do some of the stuff you do live, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll see where it is, you know. And so sure. we would run it, and um, and then he would listen to it and go, okay, you know, this might be too much, you know, don't play so much here, or let's lose this, you know, this punch that that y'all have developed because there's some stuff on Stranger in my house. That has just happened live over the years. Yeah. Uh, Ronnie would do uh, a lick on the piano, and I'd notice he would do it like two or three nights in the ro- in a row, the same place. I'm going, okay, I'm going to get on this with him. Yep, you know, yeah. and and then Warren would follow, yeah. and uh, and yeah. it became part of the song now, the way we do it live. Yeah, but some of that stuff we had to lose. Yeah, in re-recording it. Yeah. It is interesting. Um, I was uh, subbing for a buddy of mine. This was years ago. But uh, I had the studio recording, and I also had a live recording. And the studio recording had a brush overdub of just regular drums with sticks and everything. And I asked him, I said, well, how do you approach this? Do you start with this? And he's like, well, for live, this is kind of what we do. And I think that was the first time that that concept was kind of introduced to me as far as playing. It's like, well, when you're performing this live, there is the studio recording, and that's a good place to start. 
but how do we approach it differently depending on the style, the feel, the tempo that could bring a little bit something unique and energetic to it that you don't get on the recording. Right. And in this, and I just find it fascinating because this is almost like you're reverse engineering this and you're, how do we set it up for a studio recording? Right. I mean, especially since they had, you know, great tracks from decades ago, but, you know, but we, they modernized, uh, you know, the sound and, and, uh, and, and Ronnie wanted us, you know, hopefully to bring some of that live energy to the track. This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com. Back in the east coast of Virginia... I started in the school band program when I was in the fifth grade. And uh, one of the reasons I wanted to play drums is uh, I had a cousin who lived a couple of doors down who's five years older than me that started playing drums. And I thought he was the uh, coolest thing I'd ever, ever seen, you know, that he, he was, he was playing. And, um, Plus that, and, and uh, my dad would bring me home uh, 45s every once in a while. I, I loved listening to records from the time I was three. Mm-hmm. And uh, he'd actually brought me home a, a little Re- little Richard 45. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was like, that's what I want to do, you know, at a young age. Yeah. I want to do that. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, I started in the school band program at, at fifth grade with a rented snare drum and um, just did the school band thing. And, uh, of course, I wanted to play drum set. Um, I saved up enough money one summer, cut uh, shining shoes in my dad's barber shop uh, to pay for half of a Ludwig Classic. You know, they I saved up 35 bucks, And my, my dad paid the other 35 which was a lot of money. Back then, uh, and uh, still have you know that that drum. Do you? Oh yeah. Oh wow. Uh, got all that old Ludwig stuff that I had back then. Yeah. But uh, you know, I'd get it a piece at a time. I had a, a snare drum, and then I got a, a bass drum, and then I got a ride cymbal. It's like a Johnny Cash song. Yeah. <laughs> I just I had to get it a piece at a time. Yeah. Like that, and yeah. it's at some point I, I I got a rack and a floor. Yeah. You know, and and uh, but uh, yeah, that those early records, and then my cousin being a drummer was was you know kind of inspiration to to get going. Um, when I got into uh, middle school, eighth grade, my band director uh, then thought that I had uh, some potential that I wasn't realizing by not taking private lessons on snare drum, and so he talked to my parents about it and got me involved with a, a private teacher in the area and uh he was he was correct i mean this guy really really pushed me forward you know i, I think i took lessons from him for about three years on snare drum and uh timpani and he stopped the lessons because uh, one day he had this uh book um 
that was pretty complicated for the time. It had lots, you know, like different time signatures and things like that. And he would open up a page and we would sight read it together. Mm-hmm. And we would both mess it up at the same spot. And at that point, he said, I'm done with snare drum with you. Uh, he said, let's do some timpani for a while. You know, so we... And um, uh, played uh, garage bands, you know, uh, anything. I just played as much as I possibly could. Yeah. Self-taught on drum set. Okay. But, uh, you know, went through the whole school band program, uh, marching band. Uh, in high school, they did uh, musicals, and I played in the pit orchestra every year, okay. uh, which was pretty intense. Yeah, my reading was uh, really good back then. I'm going to say right now it's not. <laughs> Ever since I moved to Nashville, you know, it just hasn't been, uh, you know, a requirement uh, with the things that I've been doing. Sure. Um, uh, it, it, it certainly came in handy with when writing even number charts, you know, to be able to write a rhythm out uh, to, to get me through a thing. But uh, I went one year of college. I went to Shenandoah Conservatory of Music. And I only went one year. I had this, uh, I, my band director in high school was, was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I always thought I wanted to, you know, kind of like do what he did. And that was the school he went to. And after a year, I did realize that being a band director is not what I wanted to do. Yeah. You know, I really wanted to be in the next Led Zeppelin. And that was my, you know, <laughs> you know that didn't work out eventually. But uh, uh, that's what I wanted to do was play play drum set and so I, I went home after the first year and I didn't go back I did uh, a construction job this summer after I graduated um, where I grew up there was a big power plant nearby um, and a Texas firm had come out to build the power plant and uh, one of the uh, supervisors over there was renting a house from my mom that was my grandparents old house and he told her I could have a summer job working with him if I wanted it. And so I go from, you know, the college life and I come home and a week later, I'm working 80 hours a week at this construction job, 12 hours a day, Monday through Friday, 10 on Saturday, 10 on Sunday. Yeah. The only time we got off was if it just rained so hard you couldn't work. But I was living at home and essentially getting paid for 100 hours a week, you know, and minimum wage. That it, I was getting better than minimum wage. I started out at like $4 an hour. Yeah. You know, this is 1973. Wow. You know, and gas was still about 30 cents a gallon. Uh-huh. Um, so I did that, and that, was, that also kind of helped me make my decision that I didn't want to go back to school. I just I stayed until that job played out. But I did play. I, there was, there, you know, uh, mostly I wasn't in anything regular. I went out and sat in with some groups and um, uh, things like that and ended up in some local bands, you know, playing the clubs again and and everything like that. What was, I mean, what was the scene? What was playing in clubs at in, in that time? Uh, you had to have horns in the band. Uh, that was a requirement. I mean, unless you were playing country music in the VFWs and things like that. But the club scene back then, which was uh, heavy in Virginia Beach, Norfolk area, and then the Carolinas for for us, you had to have horns in the band. And was that part of the beach music scene? Some of that. Um, 
but that all you know the popular dance music of the time you know the ohio players and cool and the gang and earth wind and fire average white band came out during that time and um that was the stuff the bands you know were playing and then disco hit and that boy that was that was tough on every on the musician side of it except for the bass players there were some great bass lines right. in the in the disco stuff but you had to carry extra hi-hats if you were because <laughs> you were prone to you know i mean you hi-hats got to work out on that stuff the girl that was going to be my wife uh playing in a band and uh we got married and i was in a a band in richmond virginia at the time and so when we got married we moved up to richmond Mm -hmm. and it was a great horn band a band called the andrew lewis band you know they were very regionally popular and um the band broke it was a very together band i mean they had a straight truck you know, a nice PA system and lights. Um, the booking agent agency was all behind them. They had health insurance. What? Yeah, and we were on salary. And, uh, you know, it wasn't high, but it was, I mean, we had a salary, health insurance. We had a crew that set up the gear. Um, uh, so that was uh, that was pretty nice back then to have that going. And then uh, when that ended... Um, I did take a day job. I didn't know what I was going to do um, and uh, ended up working for an insulation company for a while. And, you know, it, it paid the bills. I started playing some more. I worked with a, a guy named Steve Bassett. And Steve is, uh, he still plays today. He's uh, big in the Richmond area. He's a blue eyed soul singer. Mm-hmm. And uh, he called me and, and I started doing some gigs with him. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, a, another keyboard player that was on that gig was a guy named Larry Bland, and he was the director of a black gospel choir in Richmond. Mm-hmm. And he asked me if I'd be interested in doing some drum playing with them. Mm-hmm. And so I did that. <laughs> I did that too. And uh, before uh, Judy and I got married, um, I played. I was playing the band that I was playing in at the time when we met. Um, the the keyboard player in that band who was black um, knew these folks in the Norfolk area, and they were looking for a keyboard player and a drummer. They had a band called at that time called Weekend Affair, and they came out to this club we were working and asked if I'd be interested in playing with them. Well, it was it was all black band and and me. And the band leader on that is a girl named Kat Dyson, who later on, many years later, she she did a couple of tours in Prince's band. Uh, she was with Cindy Lauper for like 14 years, something like that. She wow. li- she lives out on the West Coast, and we're still in touch. Mm-hmm. We haven't played, but one of the interesting things about the, that band, uh, it was a killer band, uh, just great vocals and everything, but. Back in that time in Virginia and in the South in general, uh, they wanted a mix of folks in the bands to work in the clubs around there. Because I took that t- a tape of the band to a couple of booking agents I know, and literally the first question out of their mouth after they heard the band, they said, this sounds incredible. What's the racial mix? Interesting. 
And I said, well, there's me, and the rest of the band is black. And they said, I can't book it, can't book it. But a couple of club owners in the area did book the band they, because they knew me. Yeah. And, um, uh, and one of the interesting things on, on those gigs was that they were all friends with the Wootens. And I, had, I didn't know the Wootens. I had not heard of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Victor was too young to come out. He was like 12 years old at the time. He was still trying to reach the low F on his Olympic base, I think. Roy and Reggie... And Joe and uh, Rudy, their brother that passed away several years ago, would come out and sit in. And I'm going, where did these guys come from? I mean, it it was just unbelievable. It was ridiculous how good they were. And all from the same family. But that that was an interesting, you know, short time. But um, what uh, I got off track again. That's uh, But... um, up and when we were in Richmond and the band broke up, the Andrew Lewis band broke up. Uh, my wife actually said, "She said, you know, if you're going to try to do music as a living, we really should think about moving somewhere where it's a business." Mm-hmm. And at the time, there was New York and Los Angeles and Nashville. Yeah. And so we picked Nashville. I said, "I just don't think I can do New York. I, I don't." Um, and I don't want to move all the way out to California. So we started making plans to move to Nashville, and that's when the um, uh, bass player Fido Stevens that I grew up around in Virginia, he was a bass player, singer that played country music. He convinced me to come down and play for a year with uh, that family theater that they had, uh, Donk's Theater in Matthews, Virginia, and he said that you would – you be able to meet a few people that are in Nashville yeah. before you go out there, and that's where I met Lori Morgan. Okay, was doing that and got to play some shows with uh, Joe and Rose Mafis. I don't know if you, uh, Joe Mafis was a astounding guitar player. Uh, he was the guitar player on like the Bonanza theme, and wow. and um, uh, his son Jody Mafis is still active yeah. uh, in music, and uh, his wife Rose who's still alive, uh, was an incredible rhythm player. And uh, so I got to do some shows with those, with them, and, and uh, they put me in touch with Jody out here and um, as somebody that might be able to help. Well, and, and I don't know if we were recording at the time you were telling me about Lori. Oh, yeah. Uh, when we did the show with Lori, we were just, Judy and I were just a couple of weeks away from making the move to Nashville. And... Uh, um, and I got a, another story about that, how I was able to really to get in Nashville. But anyway, she uh, she was going through a divorce at, a, at the time with a, a guy that was a bass player named Ron Gaddis. Mm-hmm. And he was in the house band at the Western Room, which was in Printer's Alley. Mm-hmm. And she told me that, uh, she says, I'll call Ron and tell him you're coming to town and that uh, to let you come and sit in and meet the guys in the band. Mm-hmm. And everything, and sure enough, I, as soon as I got to town, I went out there, and he said, "Yep, Lori called me." He said, um, "After we take this next break, he said uh, we'll get you up and play a few songs." Yeah, and so the the networking started, you know, right there, right away. Um, and that was, and she was going, she was in the middle of a divorce with this right. guy, but she but, still knew. Yeah, she still she called him, and that was, that's nice. And uh, 
And so I got to meet him. Um, uh, the drummer, uh, Randy Oswalt, was in. Um, mm. uh, he went on to. He played some with uh, Terry Gibbs. I don't know if you remember her. Mm-hmm. Somebody's Knocking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also a blind okay. piano player. Right. Um, um, the steel player, uh, Gene O'Neill. He had been out on the road with uh, Charlie Pride. Mm-hmm. You know, so there were some heavy hitters in that mm-hmm. in that band, and yeah. so it, it was a, a good a good beginning. But it was interesting when we decided to make the move out there. And I'm from this little little town called Seaford, Virginia. It's on the water mm-hmm. down there near Yorktown, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And uh, an older, uh, you know, life lifelong family friend, older gentleman down there. He had an oyster business. And he had a uh, uh, a business associate here in Nashville who was a food broker, and their food their company sold this guy's oysters, spare oysters. Hmm. And he called Bob Stockard out here, and he says, "We've got a uh, a friend down here in, in Virginia that's coming to Nashville." He said, um, "If you know of any places that he could stay." cheap when he moves out here because i came out for six weeks prior to my wife coming out so you were married already yeah we were married yeah and uh he told him he said well bernie he says if this guy's okay with you he's okay with me he says my kids are grown and moved out i've got plenty of room he can stay with me and my wife as long as he needs oh wow so i moved out out here rent free for six weeks. Holy cow. Well, I did the networking thing and tried to get meet some people uh-huh. out here. Yeah. And uh, the, what year was this? This would have been like 82. Uh-huh. Okay. 82, something like that. And uh, the, only, the only payment I had to give him was when he was doing stuff around the house, I'd help him paint, you know, <laughs> right, and right. clean gutters. And I was, yeah. Whatever you need. Yeah, you got it. And he, he must have driven me to every apartment complex in Nashville trying to help me find a place for Judy and I to move into. Yeah. Um, so I can't thank their family enough you yeah, know, for, sure. for what they did to help. That's amazing. Uh, to help me here. But one of the first calls I made, other than going to the Western Room, I looked up in the phone book and I found Kenny Malone's number in the white pages. So I cold called him. <laughs> And uh, told him what I was doing and everything. He said, let's meet for breakfast. Yeah. And so we How met. How did at, you know Kenny before? I didn't know him. I just knew of him. Okay. That's as a right. session player. Right. You know, he was already established here. Yeah. Back then. Yeah. And uh, so I cold called him, and he couldn't have been nicer. Uh, he treated me to breakfast and, and basically gave me the same advice that holds true today is to meet as many people as you can. Mm-hmm. And go sit in wherever they'll let you sit in, and let mm-hmm. people hear you play. Yeah. And um, it wasn't—I don't know how long it was after that—that that he let me come along with him on a couple of sessions mm. that he was doing. And I sat in the in the drum booth with him. He had Billy Sherrill run me a separate headphone mix. Mm. And I sat in the drum booth with him while he was recording the Merle Haggard, George Jones album. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> just the whole time? Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. While he's playing and recording, I just had to be quiet in there. And, yeah. And. Uh, you were just a baffle. Yeah. I was just in there and I was just soaking all this in. You know, he had his yeah. drums in there and he said, 
he said, he said, this engineer is amazing. He said, this will take about 30 seconds to get a drum sound, you know. <laughs> and he was right. You know, it took less than a minute yeah. for him to get the drums. Of course, Kenny's drums were, you know, sounded immaculate anyway. Yeah. So yeah. so that was, a, that was a pretty cool experience. Did you have any experience playing any kind of country music leading up to this point? Yeah, actually, uh, quite a bit. Um uh, that bass player that I mentioned, Fido Stevens, who was uh, kind of a legend in Seaford. Mm-hmm. You know, he worked at the shipyard, but he played music on the side. And uh, when I was in high school, my junior year and especially my senior year, I used to play gigs with him. There mm-hmm. was a stretch in my senior year in 72 that that myself, uh, this guitar player friend and um, uh, bass player, who he played bass in our jazz ensemble, but he also played baritone horn in the concert and marching band. The three of us played with Fido uh, Wednesday and Thursday nights from 11 till 3 in the morning. Oh, my gosh. At a, an American Legion hall. And our parents let us do that, you know, because they knew him and they trusted him. And he yeah. promised, I won't let him get into trouble. And, yeah. you know, and everything like that. And we would leave there at four in the morning after playing yeah. and go straight to the parking lot at high school and wait for school to open. <laughs> oh, my God. That's amazing. And go to go, you know those two days. We did that for, I don't know, about a month or six weeks or something like that. And try and stay awake through. Yeah, and so, you know, that was, I played, he let us play rock tunes. You know, he let us play old James Gang and, Black Sabbath and and all that kind of stuff out there, but we would play Jim Reeves and Haggard and George Jones and all that stuff mm-hmm. with him and yeah. and I just never really gave it a lot of thought until I moved out here and all of that, you know, really paid dividends in a lot of ways. And then you get a gig where you're not playing as many traditional, right, <laughs> right, <laughs> but but with the whites. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that opened up a lot of. I had to play, did a lot of stuff with a brush and a stick. Yeah, you know, blastic train beats, uh-huh. uh, things like that. It mm-hmm. was it was a different. That was a whole different thing for me to to start doing. What was the first full time thing that you landed once you were here? So at that point, hanging out in the studio. Um. I got into a, a rock band. It didn't. It didn't pan out. But I want to uh, talk about this particular band because of the bass player in it. Um, I got in touch with a guy named Jerry O'Donnell, who had a music store here in town for for years prior to to me meeting him. O'Donnell Music. Okay. He was a keyboard player, and I got put in touch with him through a mutual friend that he was putting a band together at the time. He was Barbara Mandrell's house engineer. Mm. And he was leaving that and putting a band together. And he had this bass player. And so I came over to kind of audition with him and the bass player. Well, the bass player was Alan Woody, mm-hmm. who who went on to be the bass player with Government Mule and the Allman Brothers okay. that passed away quite a few years ago. Yeah. But he was the first bass player that I worked with in this town. And I thought, mm-hmm. my God. Is everybody in town like this? You know, mm-hmm. because we were auditioning guitar players, and Alan at one point said, "Well, if they can't play guitar better than me, I'll just play b- guitar, and we'll get a bass player." And I said, "Well, then we'll be right back." 
at the same place. Yeah. You know, it was that he was that good. Yeah. But anyway, that didn't last very long. We were too rock and roll for the clubs mm. at the time. But my first full time gig was with a uh, a band called Quick Change. And um it was, you know, the typical van and trailer. Yeah. Um, but the front guy in the band was Tim Nichols, who's now a Hall of Fame songwriter. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. You know, he was constantly writing songs back then. But mm-hmm. uh, it was a good little band, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we we traveled a lot up in New England and played. The booking agency was was from that area. And, and so we we did a lot of that. We'd, uh, we would play clubs on our own. Uh, the booking agency also handled some of the older Opry acts who at that time would have been like uh, Jan Howard. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they handled uh, Sheb Woolley mm-hmm. at the time, uh, Billy Walker. And we, we, we might go out and play six nights in a club somewhere. And then the next weekend, uh, Friday night, we might be Billy Walker's band. And Saturday night, we might be Sheb Woolley's band. Wow, and I don't know if you're familiar with Sheb Woolley. Um, Sheb had an interesting career. Um, he had the song "Purple People Eater." Yeah, that was his song. He's also a TV star. He was in Rawhide. Uh, he was in a lot of movies with Clint Eastwood. Uh, okay. He was in the movie Hoosiers, uh, okay. things like that. So we would be his band. Okay, uh, what a hysterical guy. <laughs> You know, to hang out with he he was he was a lot of fun. It was fun to go to his offices because um, he'd have this uh, he had this framed billboard chart top one hundred and um, Purple People Eater was number one and probably six of the next nine of the out of the next top ten songs were Beatles. Oh wow! So he had topped the Beatles on the top one hundred <laughs> for a few weeks. I'd frame that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So we, I did that for, um, I don't know, close to a year, mm-hmm. I guess, nine months to a year. Mm-hmm. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me. I How got, are you feeling about about your move, about leaving home and, and coming here at that point? Well, I was feeling great because while the being gone, you know, for weeks at a time in a van and a trailer – like that when we did my very first show of backing up somebody like Sheb Woolley, mm-hmm. I made a hundred and twenty five dollars myself. I had never made a hundred bucks in a day playing drums in my life, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I just thought, oh my God, you know, this this was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and was your wife working? Yes, she yeah. got. She has advertising experience, and it took her virtually no time to get a job here. Gotcha. Uh, she was working at uh, Channel Two uh, at the time in their marketing department. Okay. Yeah, I couldn't have done any of this without without her because mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the music has been full time at times, and and most of the time it hasn't been. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. for me anyway. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's impo- that's an important thing. I mean, you it, it dev- kind of keeping that balance between family and then and work, and yet having dual income is also a part of the equation. Right. Well, when I left that that quick change band, um, I got with a a band 
called the the Knott Brothers. Um, and while I was with Quick Change, what was very popular to do at that time was to go in and record uh, a tape, you know, mm-hmm. to sell on the road yeah. at your gigs and stuff like that. So uh, we went to this guy's home studio, a guy named Mark Morell. And at the time, he had a case company. Mm-hmm. And it was Nashville Custom Case. Okay. But we went to his house and recorded. Well, Mark called me later on to do some stuff, other projects for him later on. Uh, not a lot, but just a, a, you know, a jingle here and there sure. and something like that. But it was it was experience. Yeah. Well, this band called the Not Brothers. They weren't really brothers. They were not brothers. Um, <laughs> you know, a real three part harmony based kind of thing, country mm-hmm. rock. Mm-hmm. They needed a drummer, and so they decided individually to call everybody they knew to get recommendations for a drummer. Mm-hmm. Well, they said my name was the only name that ended up on all three lists, so they mm-hmm. called me. Yeah. And so I went uh, and played with them, and I, I was with them for uh, three years until that ended, and that's when I ended up with the the Jeff Allen Band. Okay. And since the Jeff Allen band was based mostly, we played mostly here in Nashville, I found myself with a lot of free time during the day. And and being the horrible self-promoter that I am, I didn't use that time to try to foster, you know, to try to get studio work and uh, do other things that way. I, I had gotten kind of settled into my routine, and I called Mark because I did like building things. Mm-hmm. And I called Mark, and I said, man, if you ever need any part-time help yeah. or over there, I've got time during the day. I don't know anything about what you do, but you know, I'm pretty handy with, with stuff and can learn. Well, it wasn't long after that he had me come out and start working part-time for him, and that was my introduction to case building. Mm-hmm. And it turned out I was pretty good with it. Yeah. You know, he wanted me to quit playing music altogether and work for him full time. Yeah. Uh, which I, you know, didn't do, and I'm glad I didn't. But right. So that was my introduction to building road cases, and, and I've done it ever since. I guess it's a double-edged sword, but all of the opportunities to play down on Lower Broad, mm-hmm. the, none of that existed. Yeah, back then when I moved to town, mm-hmm. and as a younger, much younger guy back then, I would have been all about it. Yeah, you know that that sort of thing, and I, and I know it's a trap for a lot. You know, I talk to a lot of the younger guys. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned Keo. Keo has kind of uh, introduced me to a lot of the younger players, mm-hmm. uh, and I've become friends with them. Mm-hmm. And and I know some of them work down there, and, and, and quite a few of them make a good living down there. Yeah, it's hard. It's, you know, it's it's very work. hard work. But yeah. you know, I th- I think on one hand, it's it's positive to have that much work down there available. Mm-hmm. You know, as tough as it can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, the downside of of how big Nashville has gotten is how hard it is just to even get down there to do your job, and the hassles that I see the guys going through with. Yeah. You know, just uh, just trying to get one box of gear unloaded, uh, you know, from off the street and rolled into the club so they can go park somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I applaud uh, Dave Pomeroy's efforts with the city 
uh, in trying to work with the police and and the clubs and things like that. And I think some very positive things have happened for a lot of the guys down there that work regularly with getting a break on parking in certain areas. Yes. And yeah. things like that. Yeah, there's a there's a uh, and, and and also because of the uh, population increase, uh, there's been some issues with violent crime. Right. That's been occurring on a more regular basis, and so there's actually some well lit garages that give discounts to in conjunction with the clubs and the and the garages there. So there's more musicians that find a common space to park, and so they I see a lot of. Uh, a lot of people walking in groups, which is just frustrating to think that that has to happen. But well, do. you do, you know, you do what you have to do. Yep. In, in those situations, and it's yeah, you know, it is sad that it's gotten that way, but it's just a fact of life right now. Until you know something changes for the better on it, and mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, what what they can do to make that better, but. Uh, you just have to be smart about it. Yeah, and you mentioned the double-edged sword. I mean, as far as the the work, the the just getting down there, the the kind of the negative side of it being trapped in that area, but the positive side of having opportunities to play. Right. And, I mean, you know, it's you know, from a playing standpoint, you know, I know I, I see people, you know, they're looking for players, and and you got to know know the Broadway set. You know, right, right. It's it's if you exactly, you can work with ten different groups, which I probably know most of it. I don't realize it, but I probably know a good bit of it because it's a lot of classic rock and and, and country and things like that. I won't yeah. know some of the newer country, but right, right. Um, yeah, it's kind of it's funny to to think of it that way. But none of that existed on Lower Broad. I mean, there was Tootsie's and and I think Roberts and and. Uh, Legends and then uh, adult bookstores. Uh, exactly. Uh, lots of uh, department stores boarded up. It you know, Printer's Alley actually had the highest concentration of live music, and there was a couple of strip bars down there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boots Randolph had a supper club down there, okay. and and um, and that sort of thing. But um, you know, when the Nashville Network came into being. Um, I guess Gaylord built the Wild Horse Saloon down there on Second Avenue, yep. and there was a dance show that that originated out of that club hmm. that became hugely popular around really? the country. I forget what the name of the show was, but it was on Nashville Network, and the line dancing thing had come into, you know, was was really getting some steam, yeah. and they did a show from the Wild Horse that would have live, you know, artists play, yeah. but also featured a lot of that line dancing stuff, yeah. and it was hugely popular around the country. And that club started becoming a tourist destination yes. for people. And then, as I see it, I mean, maybe a, a local politician could steer me in a different direction <laughs> on this thought, but I think that's when Lower Broad started to happen because. Mm. You know, on Second Avenue, you had the Wild Horse and, and like the the old time Spaghetti Factory, and and not much else. Mm-hmm. And then things started to kind of build uh, around that. I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable house. what's going on down there now. Yeah, and yeah, it really is. It really um, is. You know, it's like any kind of growth like that. It's good and it's bad. It is. It's. I. It's. I'm starting to now that I've been off the road from a, a road gig for about two years, and so 
some of my work has been down there, and it's amazing how much it's changed, and uh, and and it's a blessing to have, but it's also I have to be mentally and physically ready to go. Right. And I do enjoy it, but uh, again, I, I have to be really conscious about my sleep and everything else, and, and I'm not in my 20s. I'm not in my 30s anymore. So, so. Yeah, that's a long time out for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the other thing I wanted to ask you. So drums are physical. There Now, I've seen Dr. Preston Wakefield here in town maybe five times over the last 10 years. I feel pretty good that that's the only... I've only had to see him five times, but it just, it just, it's not getting any easier. Right. So with some of the demands that we have, what, have you had to deal with anything like that over time? Um, I deal with some arthritis issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've been, I've been playing drums for, you know, sitting on a drum seat at various lengths of time over the years for, you know, over 50 years. Yeah. Um, but I've also done this this custom case building thing, you know, for yeah. uh, over thirty years. Yeah. And using hand tools, uh, standing on concrete. Yeah. Uh, all this time, and you know, plus the um, the you know the the pounding that your joints take from playing drums. You know, like playing the whites was not a physical thing, but that Jeff Allen band thing was was very physical uh-huh. uh, we were loud and proud up there and i was using huge sticks you know i was at that that point where i would blow out you know snare side heads and mm. and breaking die cast hoops on my snare drum and and things like that and i went from that to you know, 33 and 30 okay and two grandchildren that's awesome but uh, as far as the the physical thing, um, I have some you know some arthritis in my thumbs. Mm-hmm. Uh, my left knee mm. is in bad, pretty bad shape mm-hmm. uh, with regards to not having much cartilage left in it. Mm. Uh, my right foot, you know, right on my like on my the ball of my foot, my mm-hmm. big toe and all, uh, it hurts. Um, but like a lot of ailments that you get you know when you start playing yeah you don't notice it you yeah. know i think people would say well it sure sounds like it hurts you know <laughs> when i hear you play but uh it it, uh, it doesn't bother me much when i play i do notice and i could probably remedy some of this if i was more diligent with stretching mm. and things like that but i always play i've played with two floor toms forever and yeah. sometimes when I go for the second floor time, I'm like, ooh, <laughs> <laughs> my body that. doesn't want me to reach that as well. You know, just that kind of thing. But yeah. uh, because my knees are in kind of in rough shape, I don't I don't run anymore. Okay, I was going to ask if there's anything that you did. It's some some stretching and, and things like I try to. I'm not not been as diligent with it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as I should. But and, you were running at one point? Yeah, I used to jog some, and I used to play a lot of golf. Okay. Used to play a lot of golf, and I, that's probably played into some of my you know joint issues. I, I see. I, I've been going to a chiropractor for probably fifteen years, fairly regularly, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, to get my back adjusted and, yeah. and back in shape. But yeah. uh, 
Um, and you know, when I generally when I practice something at home, I'm, I I practice my fife and drum stuff with the big Cooperman sticks. Yes. Um, I was going to ask, like, if you have time to practice what you do. Um, I have. It, it's tough to carve out time. By the at my age now, you know, sixty four, yeah. when I've worked nine ten hours building cases, the last thing that I'm thinking about is going home and and shedding for an hour. Yeah. You know, if if there's something I have to do, uh-huh. um, you know, like every once in a while, Tom Hurst will call me about doing a loud jams. Exactly. Or, and it's just one song. I know. But it's always out of, you know, what I'm comfortable playing, what I've done. You From know? his set list, you never yeah. know what it's going to yeah. be. Yeah, and he'll... He'll get, throw me something, and I'll let. I was like, wow, man, I've never done anything like this. I was okay. So I've got a V drum set up in a bedroom, you know, and yeah. I'll sit up there with headphones, and I'll, you know, I'll shed a song like that if I need to sub for somebody, mm-hmm. you know. I I will work diligently mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on that stuff. But mm-hmm. it, uh, aside from a lot of drum set practicing, I don't do a lot of it these days. Mm-hmm. I do more just the snare drum with the rudimental stuff mm-hmm. and trying mm-hmm. to memorize mm-hmm. uh, some of the fife and drum music that's that's new that they didn't play when I was in the core and and right. uh, and uh, I don't know and getting older there's no upside to it man <laughs> stuff just doesn't stick to in <laughs> I used to be able to play those things and memorize them after a couple of times through and, <laughs> and, and then make, you write it down and then you can't see it yeah it's just, now, it's just a, yeah it's, uh, <laughs> it's a, well let me ask you what what the rest of your year looks like um, doing shows with, with Ronnie, we've got a bit, September's been a busy month. We had, uh, when September's done, we'll have done 10 shows this month, which yeah, is, that's, that's a lot for good. old people, you know, that's, yeah. uh, uh, got dates in October and November too, about six in each, each month, yeah, six or eight and, uh, nothing going on in December right now. I got one show in December. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to see you know see a few more come in, but if it doesn't, that's okay. Um, mm-hmm. I've got work stacked up that I will never get done at Spectrum, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as far as building cases. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I probably I didn't end up doing as much in music as I as I hoped I would. Uh, but doing the case building thing, I guess I didn't at, at the end of the day apply myself to it as much as I could have. But raising two children in, in this town and being able to play, and uh, I, I kind of went for the regular money and the regular income, you know, being able to do both. I think it, I, I don't, I mean, I think there's a lot of pressure to um, define success based on other people's expectations. And uh, there's so much that we do that people don't understand brings happiness right and it brings a level of success to yourself and um you know you always use that term defining success on your own terms and i feel like in this business um especially on with social media and and the way things are we see so much of what people are doing that there's times that we feel like oh man am i doing enough i'm constantly questioning am i working hard enough am i doing enough things and um, it's it's this added pressure that I think is unnecessary because at the end of the day, it is about uh, building relationships 
and and being happy with with what you do. Yeah, that's that's the thing I was going to say is are you happy doing what you're doing? Mm-hmm. And if so, that's okay. Um, you never know when that opportunity is going to knock, you know, and if you stay ready for it, you can jump in and do it, you know, when it when it comes. I mean, it's like when when I got called you know, to do the the Millsap thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd been playing very traditional country for five years, but I also had, you know, some pretty heavy rock experience uh, leading up to that. And yeah, and you know, I think I think I was pretty well Seems like rounded, a perfect fit. Well rounded to do yeah. what Ronnie was, uh, you know, needing me to do out there. Now, um, one of the things that the case building thing has afforded me is that. I'm, you know, I've been treated as a full-time employee there for 28 years, mm-hmm. which, you know, I get paid vacation mm-hmm. and things like that. But like so many of my friends, that all they've done is play music. Mm-hmm. They don't know what they're going to do when they're 50. Mm-hmm. You know, if they haven't gotten something else going, you know, whether it's teaching mm-hmm. uh, or something like that. If you know, if all they've ever done is gig with an artist, you know, that's going to come to an end. Yeah, right. and um, and you don't know when, and when when Ronnie's thing is done, I don't know when that is. Mm-hmm. Um, every year, I think this is it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I've still got the case building thing, and and I'll look for other ways to play. Yeah. I'm always yeah. going to do that, and I don't know what'll happen, but. I think there's also uh, you can put your submerge yourself so much into one thing that it becomes. I don't know. It overwhelms you and you start to hate it. You know, even the, even something that you're passionate about at a, at a certain age, I think there's times that uh, we want to insert ourselves into, into say, music in, in every aspect of our life and our career that uh, to not... I, I've, I've talked to so many different musicians and drummers that um, find other things to do for work or for whatever reason interests, hobbies, to kind of balance this out in their life, in their headspace, and it just makes the music that much better. Yeah, it's different for everybody. Well, exactly. You know, yeah, if, totally. if um, I've always, you know, in recent years, uh, you know, when I first got with Ronnie, we were doing, you know, 125 to 150 dates a year. Mm-hmm. And last year we did 65, which is a lot for us. You know, I think we're going to yeah. end up doing maybe 55 this year. Yeah. Um, it makes them seem like little mini vacations for me after being on my feet all week long in the shop. You know, mm-hmm. I get to go get on the bus, which is not as comfortable as it used to be at my age, <laughs> um, and go go play my drums. You know, for yeah. for a little while, and that's and that's fun. And I would I would enjoy uh, here in town in my you know free time, which I don't have much of, but I would commit time with some like-minded other players and doing something original or, you know, something different that you could go uh, play down at Acme one night or maybe if it was good enough, play down at 3rd and Lindsley or something like that. Mm-hmm. Just, just something else that's, you know, strictly fun Yeah, to go out and play. I mean, because I mean... What a concept. You know, honestly, <laughs> you know, as much as I enjoy playing, you know, the Millsap thing is not always fun I, you know I'm on cruise control out there I've done yeah. this you know the same show for so long yeah. and, um, but you you sound amazing man well you thank you great. I appreciate that yeah and I, and there's a reason why people call you and Tom calls you and said hey 
come do this. I know you can do this. And yeah, I always kid him. I, you know, I said, oh, so you're calling the old guy. You need a chaperone out there for, the, for this event or something, you know. <laughs> well, man, I appreciate you doing this. Well, I'm honored that you asked me to do it. Yeah, yeah. And I appreciate it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just Ronnie's just such an important part of what this town is over and and the the identity that it can't quite put its finger on and is always searching for some new sound and it's so funny that you mentioned to him but you you were doing this non-country thing from the beginning so (laughs) yeah i mean he's an important part of nashville and if you're i think he's an important part of the history to understand yeah, when your single won't get played because the guitar solo is distorted, you know, that kind of lets you know where Nashville was in radio in general at the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah they didn't, they didn't want to hear that on Stranger in My House. <laughs> Rodney, I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank this. you, Matthew. I appreciate you having me. Sure, man. I want to thank Rodney for taking the time to speak to us. Uh, he was suggested by a couple different uh, drummers in town uh, as someone to speak with. He comes off as very unassuming when you meet him in person, but he is a, an incredible player. Listening to him and watching videos online was just was a revelation in what Ronnie brings to the table to the Millsap gig. And Ronnie Millsap is just an amazing musician that covers all different styles and genres, and Ronnie definitely uh, handles it really well. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview. Right now is the time when I usually say thanks to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. Mike has decided to take a step back from the podcast and turn the reins over to Zach and I for the weekly duties that he does, getting the episodes to you. Um, his help in getting this podcast started and growing on the website and to iTunes and to you has been invaluable. Now he is teaching me how to do that, and I am currently doing that, and I'm excited about the opportunity to grow my knowledge in, in doing that. I'm sad to see him not be a part of this weekly, but it is an opportunity for Mike and I to hang out as friends and not just talk about the podcast all the time. So he will be there for us when we need him, but um, it's going to be mostly a two-man operation. And the other exciting news is we're going to be taking all the episodes and moving them over to YouTube so that we have them on there as well for anyone that uses YouTube as an audio source for podcasts and other things. So it's going to be a long time. It's going to take us close to a year to get almost 200 episodes over to that. But getting all that stuff done and file sharing is another expense that you have helped uh, us handle. And again, we thank you. And uh, so we appreciate your input and your feedback and hope to see you around. Bye-bye.